Welcome to Aperture. We're in conversation with the people thinking and doing things differently. If you like the podcast, please check out our other content on aperturehub.co. Our guest for this podcast is Ian Stewart, who is best known for being one of the founders of Wired. But it's probably not an understatement to say that Ian has turned his hand to almost anything and everything. A photographer, a sailor, an Olympic volleyball player, Ian has lived all over the world, including a long spell in China, and has worked across a range of sectors. Media, of course, but also technology, fund management, the charity sector, and most recently, academia. The challenge we have with interviewing Ian isn't running out of things to say, but instead knowing where to begin. So, Ian, maybe we could start you off by asking you what you like about living here in Switzerland. Well, first of all, Ben, thank you for having me. And uh, it's nice to be back in downtown Geneva, where it reminds me of my time in Paris. The best thing about living in Switzerland is that everything works. It's a place where, obviously, it's physically beautiful. And for someone who likes sports, it's a great place to be based. It's also central in Europe. I often say that New Zealand, where I'm from, is very much like Switzerland because it's a, a small country with a, a large foreign population where there's a lot of farmers and farms and sheep and cattle. The only difference between New Zealand and Switzerland is that Switzerland's surrounded by an ocean of people, whereas we're actually surrounded by an ocean of water. Otherwise, I, I, I find it a very comfortable place to live. Comfortable isn't the same adjective as exciting. Do you miss the excitement of living in San Francisco or Beijing? You're absolutely right. Uh, we've tried at various attempts to get our 25 and 28 year old daughters interested in living in Switzerland, but they wouldn't think of it. Um, they are the big city kids that I grew up as, and there is a certain lack of buzz. There are certain things happening here. The uh, engineering and certain sectors of finance and pharma and certain areas of medtech are growing and booming, and, and that makes for an interesting environment for an investor or someone who's an entrepreneur. But for a lot of the stuff that I do, which is consumer-focused, con technology-focused, uh, there isn't much happening here. But it's the center of Europe. It's an hour to Paris. It's an hour to London. It's an hour to Venice. It's not hard to get around, and as a base... Uh, at someone at this stage where I spend more time advising and investing and less time actually founding or driving, it's an okay place to be. A lot of people say that Switzerland could be the Singapore of Europe, i.e. an open economy on the periphery, if you like, of a large trading block um, that would become the sort of gateway and the concentration point for information flows into that block. Is that, is that the government vision for Switzerland? Is that your vision for Switzerland? Is that a viable vision for Switzerland? I think there are di big differences. Switzerland's not part of the EU. Therefore, there are constraints for trading goods and services across the border. In addition, Switzerland is comfortable and the, people, the population is not worried about anything in particular. And that makes them less hungry. Singapore is the opposite. Not only is it part of the ASEAN region and has been accepted as a financial center hub for a number of years, decades now, and therefore has a very clear position amongst its neighbors, it's also worried about them all the time. Singapore is the smallest member of ASEAN. It's a tiny physical country, and it's surrounded by very large neighbors who occasionally get into conflicts with themselves and each other, more themselves than each other. There are obviously cultural issues and religious issues that create tensions in and have created tensions in Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, and the Philippines. And that worries Singapore. 
And I think that sense of concern helps create a nationalistic fervor and drives energy into innovation, which isn't necessarily the case here. People are comfortable in Switzerland. They're happy in Switzerland. There isn't that same drive. And again, as I said, Switzerland not being part of a clear trading bloc means there are barriers to using Switzerland as a base for innovation and new. Is Singapore still as hungry as it was? Because clearly it's found material well-being. You know, standards of living have, have increased a lot. Is Singapore still as hungry as it was? The short answer is I believe so. The tension and concern about its neighbors has not dropped over the last 30 years. If you look at the incidences of problems in near neighbors, they've actually risen, not fallen, as their time since independence for some of them has elapsed. So uh, that tension still exists. Within Singapore itself, there are obviously tensions to do with the the mixed races there, the relationship with China, the relationship with Hong Kong. Hong Kong, of course, uh, their position has been radically changed uh, since the handover to the Chinese and obviously more recently. And I think all of this plays into concerns about stability in the region for Singaporeans. So yes, I still think they're hungry and I still think they have the sense of a need to do things now rather than wait. To come back to Switzerland, two questions. Firstly, is it a mistake to not be part of the EU and to try to chart a different course? And then secondly, is it okay to be a comfortable nation? Can Switzerland as a comfortable nation continue to be as prosperous as it is? Uh, I think it's dangerous to be comfortable. I'm all in favor of Intel who said that the appropriate attitude towards building anything is to be paranoid all the time. I think um, applied paranoia is a healthy attitude. Uh, so that question first, I think it's, it's, it's better not to be too comfortable because everything in life is attrition. So I wouldn't assume that everything you have now you will have in 50 years time or 100 years time. The uh, first question is a political question. I come from a branch of economics where I, I believe that smaller systems work better than bigger systems. And that's true of companies or countries. I think there are efficiencies of scale up to a certain size, but I think most things seem to grow beyond that and they become lumpy and inefficient. So I'm not a big fan of the vision of the United States of Europe. Europe as a loosely knit, coherent federation of independent states makes a lot of sense to me. If there was a way to get to a point, and I was at, some, at one point at the beginning of the Brexit process, I was wondering if that would be an example so that they created a tiering system within Europe and went back to the original 1957 idea of a looser federation of independent countries. I thought that would be good. And then maybe being part of that made sense for smaller countries. But given the united federalist stance of Macron and others to create a United States of Europe supposedly to compete with China and the US, I think I'd stand back and watch for a while. Given that it's difficult to be Singapore without being part of the European Union, and given that you wouldn't advocate for Switzerland joining the European Union. What is the economic model for Switzerland? And with 8.5 million people, can it continue to be a very wealthy, prosperous, fast-growing nation? What's What's the model? So Switzerland has a bunch of things going for it, first of all. Central location is amazing, right? So borders notwithstanding, being in the middle of everything makes a lot of things simple. Meetings, transport, exchanges are all easy from here. It's governance system works. It has this nice devolved governance for a lot of the things that make the Swiss system function, which I like. I'm not so sure that's great for education because there's slightly too much variation in education across cantons and communes, but in many other things it works really well. Its attitude towards taxation of foreign organizations, its attitude towards foundations and the setup of um, both head offices and non-profit organizations is healthy. I don't think Switzerland has many challenges. I guess what I'm saying to you is I don't think Switzerland needs to be the Singapore of Europe. I don't think it's necessary. Um, I do think that there are things that we have to be aware of. I think there are things that are going to be challenges for Switzerland going forward. And there is an issue both related to the EU plus what's happening east of here, which may give Switzerland some concern at some point. Switzerland has been under a great attack from the taxation departments of a whole bunch of countries. The loss of the banking secrecy, whilst a good thing in some governance ways, has been harmful in revenue ways. But I think that was always going to happen. It was just a question of time. So I I, I think, honestly, I think Switzerland's weathered pretty well 
some of the waves that have been crashing upon it over the last few years. So I'm not concerned about Switzerland. Now, if you want it to be a burgeoning, booming startup center, that's another question. I think, as I said, there are challenges because there's no single home market, because there aren't many investors who've built successful companies who, to come back and become examples for the younger entrepreneurs. We don't have that ecosystem here. The venture capital system is full of advisors and accountants and lawyers rather than entrepreneurs, and I think that's yeah. a problem. But I don't think Switzerland as a whole will suffer because of that. They'll, they'll just be that problem with the startup ecosystem. That will always be a problem. So if I'm, if I'm not wrong, the thing that brought you to Switzerland in the first place was attending IMD, the business school in Lausanne. And I, and I think that it was through IMD that you met Luis Rosetto and Jane Metcalf, your two co-founders at Wide. Is, is that right? Indirectly, yes. Um, I was originally, a, um, I was originally, for a period of time, I was a photographer uh, from um, leaving university where I did maths and particle physics and computer science. Um, I was a photographer for 10 years, and the last three or four years of that, I was in Paris. And while I was in Paris, I worked for People Magazine, the American People Magazine, and photographed American celebrities in Paris and French celebrities and starlets and things. And the editor of People Magazine in Paris, Kathy Nolan, was a great friend and still is. Uh, when I went off to business school to try and see if I could connect the two sides of my brain, the creative side and the logical side, it, it meant that for me, I was trying to find a way to marry the idea of business and business building as I'd been exposed to it through my years as a photographer with the fact that I was essentially a writer and a photographer at the time and wanted to um, create something. So I was already in that mind frame when I went to business school. When I came out, Kathy uh, contacted me. A friend of hers, Lane Metcalf then, Ducer now, had a sister who had a relatively new partner, um, Lewis, um, and they had a magazine in Amsterdam at the time called Language Technology, which was, which talked about, of all things at that stage, machine translation, which isn't a terribly sexy subject, wasn't a terribly sexy subject now then, is more of a sexy subject now because it's one of the yeah. facilitators for uh, machine learning and then AI. Um, but Lewis had used the technology as a way to talk about the world in ways that I hadn't seen before. So we, because of, um, if I hadn't been to IMD and done the MBA, I don't think I would have been of use to them. Um, and uh, I'm not sure um, Kathy would have suggested to Lane and Jane that they met me. Um, so I think that was, uh, IMD was certainly the, the, the catalyst for that. I also thoroughly enjoyed my time at the business school. So it was a, it was a great year and it, it, it gave me tools that I didn't have before, but more particularly it gave me a sense of the world, which I didn't have before. Did it, did it succeed in fusing the right and left sides of your brain together? It, it, it helped a great deal. Um, it allowed me to use both sides in trying to solve problems while I was at school, and I used the same attitude to problem solving when I came out. But a lot of it was context understanding. My father was a political economic journalist at the New York Times, so we'd had discussions about how the world worked when I was a kid. Um, uh, but in my own working life, I'd been, you know, it, it, I was either just doing science or I was just taking photos and writing. Um, IMD gave me a sense of the connections between government and society and companies and then finance and then marketing, all the rest of it. So it was really the contextual stuff that I got out of the school, which was cool, more than the tools itself. I got a picture of the world. I came out understanding how the world worked, and that was terribly useful. And I think that's what made me useful to Lewis and Jane. Lewis, um, when we launched and, and through that period, uh, Lewis was always the editorial voice. It was, he was the driver. It was his thing. Um, uh, and, and Jane was uh, sales, front of house advertising, and, and um, you know, the, the, um, more, more on the um, uh, generating revenue side. And I was, I think my 
um, internal title was dollars and cents. I worried about money and people and processes. So I was the suit. So how did, um, so, okay, so we know how you met Jane and Lewis and how did the idea come together? How, how did you know, how did you perceive that there was this, there was a gap for a, for a magazine like Wired? So we met in 1988. Yep. That's four and a half years before Wired launched. And at that time, language technology, as I said, was a really cool but slightly bizarre magazine talking about how machine translation would change aspects of society. So the attitude of Wired, which was how technology impacts society, rather than talking about the technology, was already in language technology. Um, as, uh, as Lewis and I talked about things, and um, we became friends instantly because we had similar attitudes to stuff. Lewis, just to be clear, um, I had also been an editor and Lewis had also done an MBA. But in, in the balance of roles as it went forward, Lewis was clearly the stronger editorial voice and I ended up doing more of the business stuff, at least at, uh, at that stage. Um, and I was helpful, I guess. Um, I think he said so himself in, in, in reorganizing the business model and the business plan. But language technology started um, was the start. It then became something called Electric Word as desktop publishing came along and Lewis realized the impact it would have on um, the ability of new voices to create platforms for messaging. Uh, for it was it was desktop publishing was a was a very big deal to Lewis. Um, and then as we realized that other technologies were coming along and as we became aware of the work of um, Mark Andreessen and his team at the National Center for Supercomputing of America in Chicago, um, we um, realized that there were a whole bunch of technologies happening. And we all got very excited about how, how, how much the world might change because of that. Um, and we were really convinced there would be change. And I can tell you that no one else was at the time. Very few people were yeah. at the time. And I think that's what, what drove it. But we also realized um, together that um, you couldn't do an English language magazine talking about world change from Amsterdam in the European market with all the languages that were there. And it became clear that Wired needed to, well, the, the new project expanded from language technology, then electric word, and then became a project which we called internally Millennium, um, uh, needed to move to somewhere in the US. And San Francisco, of course, was the obvious place since a lot of the work um, was taking place. There it was also good sources of venture capital. There was a lot of the tech companies there and Wired um, found its name and its home in, uh, in San Francisco. And we launched January 1993 with issue one. So that was four and a half years after Lewis, Jane and I met. So this is interesting, because again, if I'm correct, I understood that the, you basically threw everything at the first edition, so much so that if it hadn't actually had some decent pickup and uh, some people subscribing to it, that you would have run out of money before you could have issued uh, the second edition. It's true. Um, okay. it's, it's partly true because we didn't have very much money. Throwing everything isn't difficult <laughs> okay. when you don't have very much. Um, Fair enough. It's just this, I suppose it's been turned into one of those sort of, you know, urban tales. That's, uh, no, but it's largely yeah. true. Yeah. It's largely true. We had raised through basically a friends and family round, including Nicholas Negroponte of the MIT Media Lab, who took money out of his own pocket rather than the fund he was a GP on. Uh, I'm not sure he told his wife about that. Um, <laughs> well, uh, he, he probably did later, right? When it was I think later when it was yeah. fine, it worked out fine. But... Um, uh, so we raised a total of 250,000 US dollars. That's nothing. Yeah, we'd to launch a new magazine right. in, 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 in those days when... In those days, was, yeah. In those days, print, yeah. We, we, we assumed we needed basically 4 million to launch a magazine because it usually yeah. took you two years, maybe more, to get break-even. So you needed enough runway to last that long. We had $250,000. And in addition, we were using an eight-color press, the most expensive press in the world with metallics and fluoros. Um, it, it, you know, a lot of people would argue that wasn't necessary. I think Lewis's ar argument, and I, and, I, and I saw it work, was that the more ways you have people, the more reasons people have to talk about the magazine, 
the more reasons that the more communities get interested in it and the more people talk about it. So we had this eight color press and we had an extremely expensive uh, print run and cost process in spite of the fact we were doing everything in desktop publishing, which saved costs elsewhere. And that meant that most of that 250,000 disappeared in the first month. And yes, we would have gone bankrupt if certain things didn't happen, uh, which if you want, I'll explain. But, um, and we didn't actually get issue out, issue two out in, in February. It came out late March. And um, so you now teach entrepreneurship at the IMD Business School. Is this something, is this a launch strategy that you would advocate for others? Because arguably, you know, it's not, it's, it's not counterintuitive because the new world is one where in most markets you're trying to trigger network effects, demand-side economies of scale, and you need a big bang because you're trying to solve the chicken and egg problem. So at the risk of having sort of slightly overthought it, is it, would you advocate for big launches and throwing everything at trying to kickstart network effects? Or Sometimes. Do you think it's, okay. Sometimes. I think it depends on what it is you're doing, and I think it depends um, how dependent you are upon the time frame. In our case, publishing time frame meant that we're supposed to get issue two out pretty soon after issue one. Yeah. And if you have to take time <laughs> to get raise money, it's a bit difficult. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, so it, I, it, I think it depends. I think sometimes it's good to have a big bang launch and other times um, you need to make sure there's enough money in the bank to pay for issue two or the you know, month two of salaries and so on. So I, uh, I, I'd have to say in general, no. Uh, but you know, we were lucky. Yeah. The thing that saved us was subscription checks. Now, it's important to understand that in the United States, people didn't in those days, I think it's still true, they didn't subscribe to magazines because there were these massive magazine stores where everything that was being published in the country, you could see on the shelves, so you could pick and choose and you could have different things every month. In the UK, where, where my magazine experience, my publishing experience had happened, um, the stores were tiny because real estate was expensive. Yeah. And so the average store didn't carry all the titles. So the only way to be sure that a niche new title was there was, was to subscribe because the newsagent wouldn't necessarily carry it every month. Um, so we were not expecting subscriptions in the US, but there had been such a pent up demand for it. I, you know, Lewis and Jane had been walking the streets of um, all over the US, Madison Avenue and publishing houses and the tech companies for two years before the launch because Electric Word, uh, we shut that down two years before we launched Wired. Um, and, and, and we had, we, we developed a, an awareness of what was going on. So by the time we actually launched, we also had some crazy inexpensive bus poster campaigns, which, um, people were very excited about, but, um, there was enough demand that when it hit and, and because the product didn't disappoint, we started receiving, um, subscription checks, which we just hadn't expected to the tune of a thousand a week, right? Where the, where each check was, I think $45. So that's $45,000 a week coming in. We couldn't rip those envelopes out yeah, fast enough, sure. grab the checks and run down to the bank. And that's what kept us going when we ran out of money after the first edition long enough so that we could raise external funding to get a few more issues paid for. But we were still scrabbling. I mean, even, even the round we did in March wasn't enough to anywhere near enough to get us going through um, the two year cycle. It was nowhere near 4 million. Um, it was a few hundred thousand more, but it kept us going for a few more months. Um, and that was because we weren't a technology company. We were a magazine company talking about technology. So all the venture investors we were talking to would have been delighted to support us if we'd been developing our own tech, but had no interest in someone talking about it. Yeah. Now, it changed a little bit later when we started developing Hotwired, uh, our search engine, and the various other digital components. And then it became easier to raise money and to hire people. Um, but when we were just a magazine, 
No one wanted. To, no one cared. The consumers cared, fortunately, um, and and our our subscriptions and and readership just shot up. And we won a an American advertiser magazine award in our first year, which is unheard of. So the product was good. We did super well with the product, um, but we should have died month one. I suppose it's difficult sometimes as an entrepreneur to attribute success in part to luck. But do you think you had luck around this whole area of subscriptions? Because clearly in, in markets where subscriptions are prevalent, it's, there's a barrier to interact because you've got to displace other people's subscriptions. But maybe with the lucky break was that since there wasn't a subscription model in the US and you kind of introduced it, was that the lucky break? Or was it, it did exist. It just wasn't common, as common as it is in Europe. It was certainly lucky. And, I, and I'm... Um, uh, I have to say, I'm a big believer in admitting that luck plays a role in everything. Um, I remember um, a Tipping Point, the book, um, talks about how it was fortunate that certain people were at a certain part of San Francisco at a certain time when a certain school was doing things and Rank Xerox was doing certain things. So Xerox Labs, Xerox Park. So um, I, I think luck does play a role in everything. Um, I think there's a... Uh, it's, who is it who did that study, was it last year, of the top venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road, so the home of venture capital in, um, outside of San Francisco. Um, and the percentage of even the best VCs of their success rate was really small. It was 5 to 10%. Yeah. Um, because there are so many things that can make a company fall over. Even when you've got the right team and the right idea and the right money, um, there's a lot of things that you have to get through to make it work. And so, yeah, uh, luck helps. Now, I love the, is it the Gary Player story where... Um, he was being interviewed after a, a big tournament uh, and the interviewer said something about, gee, that was a lucky shot on the 15th, an eagle, which um, gave him a two-point lead and he won by one. And uh, he was a little taken aback by the comment. And, and his, his retort, I think, well rehearsed and, uh, by other people now, is that um, it's a funny thing, he said. I find that the uh, harder I work, the luckier I get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so luck, luck with a bit of effort and an ability to recognize the luck yeah. is terribly important. But yes, I think we luck played a part in our first uh, in our surviving that first year. And then the stuff that isn't luck, can you bottle that up? Can you teach that to entrepreneurs? We try. Uh, we try as investors. We try as as um, mentors. We try as teachers. Uh, I think there are things you can do to make to increase someone's probability of success. I'm afraid I do believe that there are certain characteristics of being pig-headed and, and a believer in, in what you're doing and, and wanting to convince everybody that, that um, really are either born or learnt from family. Um, the nature-nurture argument um, is not one I want to get into, but it's certainly before you get to school and, um, and, and before you learn at, at university or business school about how to do things. So no, I think there are certain personal characteristics that make it much more likely you're going to succeed. Having said that, there are exceptions to everything. I've so, seen. So, I've seen not so just on that. So, so what? Kept, what would you say are the personal characteristics that um, positively correlate with success? Pig-headedness is is one. Um, <laughs> is there we, is there a better way of putting that? Maybe. Um, no, I don't think there's a better way than saying pig-headedness. Yeah. I think I think drive. it really is the thing. Uh, <laughs> personal personal drive, yeah. um, salesmanship, the ability to sell something. I've seen good companies with. Um, reticent CEOs fail, and I've seen not very good companies with an inferior product do really well because the guy who's leading it can convince anybody in the room, can carry a room, and can lead people from behind, from 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 in front. So his his team behind him. So I think I think um, pigheadedness and salesmanship are two very useful characteristics. I actually think they're more important than anything else. Now you can learn finance, you can learn marketing, you can learn management, you can learn a whole bunch of other stuff. 
But I think pig-headedness and salesmanship are, are, um, are hard to learn from scratch. And um, just to get back to Wyatt, I mean, it's famous for many reasons, but I think, to my mind at least, it's most famous because it was so prescient, right, in predicting the extent to which um, the internet would have an impact on society and on business. And it's also, I, you know, I mean, you coined a lot of the language that we use about the internet today. So, um, I, I, you know, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I, I think crowdsourcing was a was a term you came up with, the long tail vaporware. I think these are all words that, that or terms that were originated from Wired. And so my question is, how how were you able to foresee you know, so well what was coming? And secondly, what was it like to be in San Francisco at, the, at that time, at, at the time that the new economy or the foundations of the new economic model were being built? It was tons of fun. Um, Lewis has been threatening to write a, um, a, a book about the beginning of Wired for a long time and hasn't. He wrote a fiction um, book uh, called Change is Good, which I recommend people read about, I think it's about a week and a half in the, in the life of a company putatively like Wired or, or technology firm, but it's, it's fiction. Um, but if you know the period at the time, there are a lot of real things and real people in that. I think um, it was a it was a time. Right, the second question first. It was a, it was a time of of huge energy. Um, there were all sorts of things going on, and S- San Francisco became a place that attracted people to it. So our being in San Francisco helped. Now, yeah. um, uh, Lewis and I, Lewis and I, and Jane, the, the three of us actually had uh, similar interests in that we all had technology in our backgrounds. Um, Lewis and I had both done a business degree, um, and we were both media fans. Right. In his case, it was consuming television on Saturday mornings as a kid, where he says he learned more from Saturday morning television than he learned from school. And for me, my mother was a, my father was a journalist, my mother was a magazine fanatic, and so I, I grew up loving print. Um, so we were naturally disposed towards being interested in the impact of technology upon media in general, and then the world uh, as an extension came from that. Um, so, but, but I would, you know, Lewis was absolutely the, 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 the core driving voice in that. But then once we were in San Francisco, we became this lighthouse and people yeah. came towards us. We had a fabulous team, you know, Kevin Kelly was on board pretty quickly. Um, uh, John Battelle became a managing editor, but also a lot of the writers in the region, um, the both fiction and nonfiction writers were attracted to us because we were the first place that took that attitude. Now there were other magazines around at the time that were either more business oriented or more new era world oriented. So a little bit, a little bit more about um, lifestyle than they were about how the world worked. We were, I guess, grounded in practical things, but very excited about real change. And we attracted to us fantastic writers. So that helped us. I think, you know, um, uh, the core team, the core editorial, t- or editorial team was, was Lewis's editor, Kevin as executive editor, and Jay, John Battelle as, uh, as managing editor. And, 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 and that was the core, which helped us manage our environment. But we had the best writers in the world come to us. It was just yeah. fabulous. Editorial meetings were tons of fun. And the stuff was either all over the wall or all on the floors, but the discussions in the rooms on the sofas was just, you know, was amazing. And I, you know, I didn't spend enough time there. I was out trying to do business deals in the UK and elsewhere, but every time he came in, the place was um, just tremendously exciting. So it was it was great fun. Uh, it was a roller coaster for all the business and other reasons, and um, you know, we messed up our IPO and various other things. But um, it was just tremendous fun. I, I I never felt that that period was work ever. And when you look back at that period and the kind of companies that were built at that time, 
Was it obvious that they were going to be the giants that they become? So, I guess one example from the very beginning that was, you know, I wouldn't say dismissed by public markets, but that was um, where the but but where the full potential of the company wasn't immediately appreciated would be something like Amazon, right? So back then, given the you know the extent to which you guys um, understood the new world, and I'm just going to quote to you from the first edition, a line that I read from the first edition, which is so, so prescient. The digital revolution is whipping through our lives like a Bengali typhoon, written in 1993. So did you know that Amazon, for example, was going to be such a big company? Lewis was really good at those lines. Uh, Lewis, <laughs> Lewis created the best strap lines in the world. Um, he, was, he was able to create um, imagery in a single sentence, which is, which is glorious. Um, the, um, the answer is yes and no. Um, we could see what was going on. We could feel what was going on. Um, but it's never easy to pick winners, even if you know what you're doing. Yep. So I'm not sure I could have told you which of the people we met was going to be driving this forward in a massive way. But then I would qualify that by saying um, the same thing that every investor, every investor who's lost and made money over a period of time says, it's not the idea and it's not the company, it's the people. It's the individuals, the, the drivers, it's the, you know, are they pig-headed and, and can they sell something? So uh, I think Jeff, it was evident from the beginning that he had this drive, although selling books online wasn't the sexiest idea around at the time. There are lots of other sexier ideas. But if I, if I look back and think about the people we met and the individuals concerned, I think um, it's a bit like, I think um, someone said to me yesterday, he was a, an Italian um, a successful entrepreneur and investor. He said that um, he can tell when things are happening, waves are happening, but he knows from personal experience, it's hard to choose which. So he just invests in all 30 in a sector and he knows that some of them will do really well. And if the sector is good, most of them will do okay. But it's very hard to choose the best, even if you think you know what you're doing. So I think I think um, I would have biased my choices if I had any money, which I didn't in those days, and invested in probably some of the better ones. But I also know now that the right thing to do would have been invest in a whole bunch because it's hard to tell who the winners are going to be. Remember that Amazon has done a bunch of turns, left and right and up and down since that starting point, and that ability to change direction and um, develop new ideas and 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 create a. Uh, a culture within his company that encourages exploration and trying new things is is what has enabled him to become and create what he's done today. Jeff was kind enough to turn up at our party last year. We had the 25th anniversary party in San Francisco organized by Conde Nast um, uh, in October last year and, and Jeff turned up personally with his retinue and uh, celebrated with us, which was nice. When you think about Amazon, for example, and some of the other companies at that time that would go on to change the world but weren't, that potential hadn't yet been spotted by public investors. Do you think we can draw a parallel between what's happening today, i.e. the disconnect between private valuations and public valuations and the difficulty people, companies are having traversing from private to public ownership? The principal problem with, um, the principal difference with today's market and the problem they create for themselves is that they're, the private market is holding on to the companies longer. Um, that's partly because there's so much money available. The cash available in the private equity space now is just extraordinary. And so um, because they can avoid scrutiny, um, avoid public market scrutiny, and because um, it's an easier process to go through, a lot of companies choose to continue growing from private market um, sources. What that means, though, is a lot of the growth that um, 
the companies can experience, both in revenue and therefore value, takes place before they go public. And the result is visible in the public markets in the fall of a great many of the IPOs over the last two years, because too much of the value has already been captured within the private equity space. And the public markets are not going to simply don't offer the upside that they used to. It's too late in the cycle. So I think that's a that's a big issue with public market appreciation of um, uh, the startups that are coming to market today. I think they've been held in the private markets too long. Um, so you think that's the principal disconnect, which is? I, yeah, I think I think there's too much money in the private equity sector, and and um, they're holding on to the companies too long. In, in the old days, there was a limited amount of money in the venture capital sector, and, and nobody got an exit until it went public. So there was a, um, a hunger to flip the company, if you will, give it its money, get it to a point where it was earning enough revenue, although in some cases in the 1990s, of course, none of these companies had revenue and they were already going public. But um, it was only, you were only liquid when, it was in, when the IPO had happened, and so people wanted to be liquid as soon as possible. I think partly there was a sense that there was a, things were a bit crazy and valuations were a bit nuts. So the sooner you got out of the public sphere, the sooner you could get out of the investment. Just, just to press you on that with a couple of real examples, then. So, if we, you know, so if we think about some of the companies that have come to market, and where they haven't seen the, the normal post-IPO pop, like Uber, for example, and Lyft, and, and Lyft, yeah. those <coughs> might fit into the into the phenomenon that you're talking about, which is where most of the value creation happened before they went public, or at least a large chunk of it, which means there's less left over, and there may be more for these companies, but at the moment, the market doesn't think so. But if we think about another example, like we work is that the same issue that it's all the value creation happened while it was private or is that just an isolated case or is that an example of where what public investors are looking for is different from what private investors are looking for maybe a business model question so i think there's a couple of things um first of all i, I do agree there's a bit of a bubble in the venture side at the moment in general in the same way there was through the 90s um, i think it's more disciplined than it was i think people are more careful but yes there's there's the same sort of well, there's some of the irrational euphoria that was taking place in the 90s is also taking place now. But I think there's more learning, there are more smarts, there's more professionalism in the companies, and um, we've learned to scale much better. If you look at, the, if you look at some of the companies that come out, um, valuation aside, the ability to scale a model is stronger than it was 20 years ago. So you, know, you have to be impressed at the way Uber has grown across markets, across countries, um, notwithstanding... Um, challenges in China and elsewhere, but those are as much cultural business issues as they are anything else. So I, I think, I think uh, a lot of things about um, how we build companies today are better. But yes, there are issues when it comes to um, uh, the discipline that is imposed by a public market and the scrutiny of the press and investors and analysts commenting every day about how well a company's doing. In the private sector, no one comments. Um, so that's partly why valuations can get pumped up in a closed room setting in the private markets and why you get, I think, um, overvaluations of companies before they become public. WeWork's a different case though. WeWork um, had, had some of the same advantages of being in the private space and therefore being able to push valuations without necessarily the analyst and or public market scrutiny that they would have had if they'd been public earlier. Um, uh, and so that was a benefit, of course, for anybody riding that train or that roller coaster up until the recent IPO fiasco. And I think it really is a question of, of, of how you view things. I, I, there are questions, of course, many people have written about how um, they don't understand how WeWork could describe themselves as a technology company when it's a real estate play. There are technology components. Uh, there is a, um, a startup company component within the environment. There's a lot of support for startups. 
Uh, WeWork also ends up with equity in many of the companies that they support, but in essence, it's a real estate play. And so the valuation that they were aiming for was um, based on all comparables in the space too high. And again, within the private market space where you're only convincing a bunch of people in two, two boardrooms, in this case, Japan and Saudi Arabia, it was okay for a while. Um, you didn't have a whole bunch of other people questioning an IPO document for two months prior to a launch to set a price. Um, and it was clear when they started talking to intermediaries and potential uh, institutional investors about their model based on true numbers that there wasn't going to be support in the public market space. Well, to change directions slightly here, because the internet has disrupted a lot of businesses, a lot of industries, and clearly one of those industries that it disrupted was the industry in which you worked, the media industry. And, and it did so by lowering distribution costs so that anybody could publish anything and reach anybody. And the economics, as a result, were completely changed. And so the question, I guess, is did you foresee this? And is that one of the reasons why you sold Wyatt when you did? Uh, it didn't have an impact on our selling. Uh, that was purely a function of um, problems with our IPO because we were supposed to go public. And the fact that having set a spending schedule and an investment in schedule, assuming that influx of money from the IPO, we suddenly found ourselves with a cash problem very, very quickly and had to take what we called vulture capital money um, to stop us going belly up um, when the IPO didn't work. Um, the IPO story is another story in itself. So we actually no longer had full control of the company from that point forward. Um, so our timing and our decisions were not entirely our own. There was a battle inside the firm um, for the two years following that until we um, eventually sold. So no, it wasn't a question of market timing and thinking, oh, media's changing. On the contrary, we thought we had a model and we thought we had an understanding of how multi-channel um, uh, communications, both for readers and for advertisers and for other third parties who might get involved, we thought we had a, an image of how that might work that, that would have carried us forward through what eventually became the downturn in, in the beginning of 2000. Um, um, but yes, um, we did, uh, on the question of what we saw and what we didn't see, we saw some of the things. I don't think we saw all of them. Um, we, we talked about the fact that obviously, um, and, and it, was original, it was part of the original idea when desktop publishing came along, but then when um, online media came along and there was almost zero, well, certainly zero marginal cost to producing an article and almost a very low cost to actually creating a platform which you could, you could publish. Um, um, uh, that, that was obviously something we talked about a great deal. We also started to talk about latterly the fact that actually it put more hands in the power of the consumer than the publisher yeah. because search allows you to search for anything. So if you're a mad keen on fly fishing and you can't get a fly fishing magazine, you can find everything you want to know about fly fishing online. I think one of the things we didn't talk about enough was how, what that would do to politics. Um, the ability to become isolated within a political sphere um, because there was no longer an editorial voice deciding what was and is not, was not appropriate within either a newspaper or magazine or on television. The fact that anybody could publish anything meant you got extremist views, north, south, east, west, yeah. uh, which, which were absent from general media. Um, and uh, it meant that the consumer no longer had someone editing for them. Uh, it also meant that you could read only what you liked because it was very rare. It would have been impossible for publication to only publish extremist views around the world in those days. The cost would have been prohibitive. Online, you could do that. So suddenly people found themselves happily 
in their information ghettos, only reading what they wanted to read, only conversing with people who agreed with them. And that, that polarization, which caused, was, was one of the big two, uh, two big causes of polarization in the media today, um, I don't think we talked about enough. The second is the, the advertising click-through. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you, so I was going to say, even, even where you have publications that have, still have editors, there's been a general move to sensationalist anyway, sensationalism anyway, because in an effort to attract eyeballs in an industry that's funded by advertising, there's a general sort of move to sensationalism and a debasement of truth. So what you're saying about the fact that anybody can publish anything leads in general to, to, to sensationalism, but also within organizations that still have editors, there's a move to sensationalism as well. Sadly so, even within good media. And, I, and the mechanics of it, people don't always understand. Um, in, again, in the old days, uh, you not only had an editor decide what was worth putting in the paper, but they also decided what was on the front page and what went on the op-ed page and how the magazine was or newspaper was balanced. So um, whether they were left-wing or right-wing, whether they were um, a north or south paper in terms of development, um, what, is they, what do you mean by North and South? So the North is traditionally the, the, the term that was used for the developed nations versus the South being ah, okay, developed right, nations, yeah. whereas left and right, of course, are polit political yeah. um, spectrum. Um, well, whichever, whichever part of your particular spectrum you sat on, you decided what you thought was appropriate. And you generally got rid of dross, and you generally did fact-checking, and you generally created a, a reasonable quality um, um, product. Reasonably now, balanced. Yes. Now, some of it was entertainment-oriented. So, yeah. you know, News of the World in the UK and, and uh, the, the New York Post in the US and other places, there, there, were, there were magazines and newspapers which were particularly aimed at, essentially, sensationalism even before um, yeah. the internet came along. So they existed beforehand. What you're talking about is, is, is the impact of click-through. In the old days, um, um, the uh, Times of London uh, used to sell its advertising at £3,000 a full page, and the Financial Times used to sell its advertising at 27,000 pounds a full page. That difference was because of the readership. We could define the readership based on who our subscribers were, subscribers filled in a form, and we knew more or less who they were. Telling the advertisers who our subscribers were was enough to justify the 27,000 pounds. That's not enough anymore. They wanna know, did they actually look at the article? Did they click through to see the article? It's not enough to say, Give us the money for every page we put in our, our, our newspaper or our online periodical because we've got great readers. The advertisers want to know, did they look at it? Now, if you have to make sure that they looked at it, you want to make sure they look at it. To make sure they look at it, it's hard to avoid tweaking the headline. Yeah. It's, hard to, it's hard to avoid the words that are slightly more sensationalist. It's hard to avoid if, 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 you're, if your ability to pay bills at the end of the month is dependent upon advertisers um, saying yes because your readership has clicked through, it's hard to avoid skewing. And that's unfortunately what's happened in, in traditional media today. And how worried are you about that as a, as a media person? And, and, and also, how do, we, how do we get back? Can we set the clock back? Is the genie out of the bottle? Because I suppose if, you, if you're an optimist, you might say that in the immediate reaction to Donald Trump's election, you saw a big spike in the number of people subscribing to to publications like the New York Times, like The Economist. Do you think, do you think as readers we're starting to appreciate the importance and the, of fact-checking and, and starting to appreciate that the truth costs money? Um, I, I'm generally an optimist. I think one of the things that characterized, one of the things that our, um, our birthday last year, our birthday party with uh, Connie Nast in San Francisco, when uh, Anna Winter was on stage and asked us, um, um, you know, 
had they done a good job of stewarding our magazine since they bought it and was there a big difference between the magazine now and before? Lewis's response very quickly was that the big difference was optimism. When Wired launched, we were optimistic about what the new technologies would do for our world, for our societies, about the positive things. Today, if you read articles about technology anywhere in the world and Wired and elsewhere, there tends to be this concern, concern about privacy, concern about abuse, concern about all sorts of things. So it's a very negative world. So the two differences were optimism versus pessimism. Um, I still remain optimistic. Um, uh, everything comes in waves and there are all sorts of things that will eventually change. Certainly there's a, I start to see whether it's on YouTube or whether it's in certain small media, um, an attempt to tread a middle road, um, to define what really is news rather than opinion and then show what the opinions are and reflect both sides. Uh, Lewis and I have talked about, um, we talked about at the party and then at Lewis's um, big birthday celebrations in France recently, we talked about the timing for a return to the center for, for whoever wanted to produce centrist media. Uh, at the moment, the biggest market, the market you logically launch an English language uh, medium in would be the US because it has the biggest English language home market. But the space is still occupied by the television stations. Um, so CBS, ABC, NBC still gain, garner a, a very big chunk. I'm not sure of the numbers anymore. I'm out of date. But they still garner, a, collect a bigger chunk of the advertising revenue than the audience they attract would support, right? So their, their percentage of viewership is down to X percent. And I think they're earning one and a half to two X, um, whatever the numbers actually are. And the reason for that is it's much harder to duplicate that by buying up a whole range of alternative media. So yeah. that it's yeah. an easy way to get to a broad audience very quickly. Um, uh, and that, that um, advertising revenue is hard to attract until they go. So if the if the if the three big broadcasters in the U.S. fail, then I think you'll see people jumping into the center again with alternative, both online and offline media um, combinations. And it, as I said, I, I already see an interest in um, most among most among friends and online for people to have something which isn't so polarized. How much of that will remain? How much of us will go back to the center, and how, how many of us? Um, We'll prefer to sit in our left and right wing bubbles is, is too hard to say. But no, generally I'm, not, I'm an optimist and I see this as just waves and I see it actually as an opportunity for, for someone who wants to do something more balanced. And what's the equivalent of Europe of the cable stations? Who occupies the center ground and who needs to be displaced in order to put in place a sort of digitally upgraded centrist voice? So the, the, um, the first thing to say is, of course, Europe isn't Europe. It's a whole series of countries. Yeah. And I hope it never becomes the United States of Europe because I like the difference of countries and food and cultures and attitudes and approaches and even governance. But uh, within that environment, you've got a whole bunch of different things. So uh, the Swiss, for example, had that vote, was it a year and a half ago, about whether to keep funding yes, um, central great. media. Yeah. Um, and um, as someone who uh, is interested in the idea of creating new media, uh, you might have expected me to vote against it. Um, to clear the ground so that you could create something uh, of value because it's clearly a costly exercise to have a national um, news organization that transmits in three languages. Um, but I didn't, I voted for it because it, it provides um, national coherence. It provides a center ground basis for news that the US doesn't have anymore. Um, and there are other countries that are the same. The BBC is not bad. Um, uh, so every, every country in Europe has, has different national news stations and private organizations, so non-government supported, that, that I think do a better job of holding middle ground than, is, than elsewhere is, um, at the moment. Is, is truth a public good, if we define public good, 
you know, as an economist would define a public good. Oh, it's something which is generally good for the public. And if you create it a bit like street lighting, or whatever, it's difficult to exclude other people from using it once created. And also doesn't diminish with more usage. So if it's a public good and public goods are generally provided by governments, would you advocate for the truth to be provided by governments? I, I can see how already framing it in that way is, could lead to a slippery slope. But um, wh where do you stand on that, the question of governments providing some level of public information? So governments are still collections of people. And people are flawed. And people have their views. Um, I, I, I think um, allowing any one group, government or private, or social, or religious, or political, um, to have the monopoly on truth, or the monopoly on the idea that they are the truth, isn't necessarily healthy for society. Um, I also don't think truth is easy to define, um, no matter what people say. Everything is opinion to a degree. And I think truth is found by triangulation. So I think the right thing to do if you're trying to have a, a society in which people are given information which allows them to work out what the truth is, to have multiple voices, but clear and fair and reasonable, arguing the point, and then we work out what's truth in the middle. Um, it's very, very hard to find absolute truth, either in current media or in history, because it's always written by someone with a point of view. I just want to go back slightly, because you, you said that you're an optimist, and one of the big differences between Wired as it was and Wired as it, as it is now is around optimism. Optimism about the, about the application of technology. Yes, exactly. Because so, we would say that, I don't think this is our term, but you've got this tech backlash, right? which is in general, a lot of voices in society have said that tech is a bad thing. Tech is taking us in, in the wrong direction. I'm surprised people aren't talking about the new Luddites yet. Yes, the new Luddites, yeah. So, so my question to you is, because I, I, I'm like you, I'm an optimist, and I think if, if you stop believing that society is getting better, then that's when you get, you know, Donald Trump, that's when you get... Brexit. And, and so my question to you is, what's the positive narrative that we should be injecting around tech? Could you make that for us in a, in a very sort of short, pithy um, statement, if, that, if that's not putting under too much pressure? So let me do the, let me do the easy stuff first. Um, I, I'm, of course, a subscriber to the notion that um, tools are tools, and it's all about who uses it rather than yep. the, the tool itself. And, and so there's, there's very little in technology in fact, I can't think of anything in technology which is normatively bad or, frankly, normatively good. It all depends on who ends up picking it up first and using it first. And so our perceptions about how things are are affected by how someone uses it. And in the case of Facebook um, and, and Cambridge Analytica, um, having a, a clear and open story about one company misusing, and it's both Cambridge and Facebook in allowing them to use the data, um, uh, that one story very quickly made people worried, and that worry has stayed because we haven't seen a lot of evidence to the contrary that uh, our, our data is being protected in any way. So um, we, we are in an environment where, uh, because it's early, and because some people on the not-so-good side are faster at adopting something and then other people on the, on the good side, again, let's define those things sometime over a drink, um, are faster at adopting something. You have this, this wave of good and bad in application of technology. The reason I'm generally an optimist has nothing to do with the technology. It's that generally I think people are good. So if you imagine it's a wave of people going backwards and forwards, some bad people, some good people trying to make use of technology, and there's a lot of these, then the only thing overarching that is 
if you think there are more bad people in the world, then it's going to be generally negative. You think there are more good people in the world, it's going to be at some point generally positive. And because I think generally people are at heart good, uh, I, I'm not worried about the technology because it'll be, it's neutral. And eventually the number of good users is going to outweigh the number of bad users. I want to move to China because having lived there for so long, we're very interested in hearing your perspective about China. And maybe we could start by trying to create a link between the conversation we're having around media and China. Because one of the big differences we note between the Chinese internet model and the US internet model is that the US internet model is really predicated on advertising revenues. And the Chinese one isn't because the Chinese one is really built on micropayments. Which model do you think is more sustainable and don't really want to go down the route of value judgment, but which model do you think is better? So, uh, first of all, I would question the the, the initial premise um, because there, there, there is advertising. <laughs> you're, not, you're not allowed to question the question. <laughs> <laughs> there is advertising in China. Yes. Um, and there are there are micropayments in in the, yeah, okay. um, the the American system. So Amazon wouldn't have survived if there wasn't the ability to purchase things, and and some of the Chinese models wouldn't survive if there wasn't the availability of advertising to promote products on third party sites. So they both exist. But you are right that there are clear differences between the two models, and there is much based on cultural and economic context as they are in actual business model analysis. There was a great need for access to product, especially in regions outside the big cities, which online suppliers provided in China. Uh, China is itself a massive market with very great differences between the poorer areas and the richer areas, the areas that are more rural versus more city because not all the rural are poor and not all the cities are rich. So that context means that certain things were more attractive to the consumer than others. Also, there's control of certain things, right? So much of the American, the beginning of the internet and the usage was about news and information, and that's heavily controlled in China. And so there wasn't the space to attract news-oriented or information-oriented or entertainment-oriented. There wasn't the space allowed by the government to, to allow these companies to build, Tudo and some of the others notwithstanding. So it really was a transaction-oriented market from the beginning because information was controlled. So it's the cultural and economic context and the governance context of the country which define what business models were used first. And I don't think either one is better. I think they're both interesting. It does mean that the Chinese are, are greatly advanced on some of the e-commerce stuff compared to us because they just did that sooner and did it better. And they have low tech with interesting high tech components in it. Uh, the telephone industry was fascinating when I first went there in the year 2000, 2001, 2002, when I saw very low tech telephones doing things that our smartphones weren't doing yet. And that's because that was the demand for transactions, for money, for payments, and so on. So I don't think you can say one is better than the other. I just think that they came at it from two different directions and there will be components of both going forward in both environments. If we believe that, again, coming from different directions, the US internet model is one where free speech is potentially under attack and one where the Chinese model where free speech was suppressed, but where potentially there's a big fight to open it up. How tenuous is free speech in the internet? It's a good question. One of the reasons that we have the craziness on the internet in the United States is because it's free speech oriented, right? So people can say anything, which means you get all sorts of garbage at either end of the political spectrum. Uh, and that's unfortunate for those people who are unable to judge whether it's garbage or not. But it's the fact that free speech is there that actually gives us the problems. Some would argue that um, the Chinese control would have never allowed that, and therefore you wouldn't get the polarization in politics that the US has if they had the Chinese model. Having said that, it, it's also very clear that carefully stated and carefully presented, um, there is much more free speech in China now because of the internet than there was. It's done in, sometimes it's an allegory, sometimes it's done very carefully. Also, um, it's very clear in spite of the increase in the monitoring of the internet that's taken place in China, 
China and it constantly increasing both through applied machine learning and also people. They have also gotten looser in some areas. So it's possible to be critical of certain things in China which weren't possible 15 years ago. And so that's an, there's an interesting play. If you watch what they stamp down on and what they allow, it's interesting. And partly it's because there are certain things that they would want to change in regions. And by having the people talk about it rather than the government provides a a push which is acceptable within the Chinese political sphere, which otherwise might be resisted by local governance in the region. So there are things going on which are interesting. But it is, it, it is again, a question of where each one started and what was allowed by the governing principles of the country at the time that defined where we've ended up. I'm not worried about free speech per se, for the same reasons I'm not worried about the application of the internet in general, because I think there are good and bad uses of it. I do think what we need to do is provide a way for people to navigate. We talked a little bit earlier about the missing editorial role in traditional media. I think that's starting to be played by individuals on the internet. So if I monitor, I, I still monitor Chinese media, both English language and Chinese language, but my Chinese language is not as strong as some. And so I have friends who have now built their businesses on monitoring Chinese media and providing external views for third parties. And I think that's going to continue. And, and, and those individuals act as editors because they provide a sense of what is sensible, what's not, and what the extremes are saying. And I think these independent editorial voices, which allow us to navigate either languages we don't know, or potentially subject matter or political areas where we're a bit fuzzy on, I think is a plus. And I think that's the return of editorial guidance in the absence of a structure, only possible because on the internet you can have independent revenue streams. And you think if we extend that analogy, this would be the equivalent of like having a blue tick on Twitter. These are people that have been independently <coughs> verified as trusted sources. The problem with the blue tick is that Facebook decides who gets it and who doesn't. And there are people I know who deserve one that don't have one. And there are people I think don't deserve one that do have one. And Facebook's decision about who gets the blue tick seems extraordinarily arbitrary at times. And also Facebook, remember, is driven largely by um, communities. If you read the legal text, as I always do on these things, it's community guidelines that decide as much as it is Facebook individuals. And if you get a very vocal community, whether it's the religious community or an angry community, they can drive policy on Facebook because Facebook just simply doesn't have enough staff to monitor it. So I, I don't think it's like the Facebook model. I think it's more like the buyer ratings on Amazon or eBay or, or Taobao because the consumers themselves rate, right? It's like book ratings, although again, you get you get manipulation of book ratings. But how, how, would that, how would that get around the sensationalist problem, which is the things that get most read today are the most sensational? How, how would you get consumers to bid up sources based on their accuracy? So the sensation problem occurs when you're going for mass numbers, absolute mass number. If you're providing an editorial service, you're not going to attract the mass people because they're not, they're not interested. So the only people who are going to come to you are those people interested in editorial voice. And so in the first instance, you've naturally selected because of what you're offering as a service. The others don't care. They don't, they don't, they don't want to look at it. But if you start providing a service which is editorial, so you're not writing, you're not reporting, you're just saying what's worth reading and what's not and why. You may be gathering the opinions around a particular area in a way that makes it understandable to people. That's a, that's a worthwhile service. And and people are going to say, yes, we like it or yes, we don't. And if you if you are, for example, slightly biased towards one way or another, it's going to be evident in the ratings very quickly, right? If you're biased towards the left, the left's going to love you, the right's going to hate you. If your comments, negative and positive, are balanced, it's a pretty good indication you're doing a good job. I think in a subset, it's mass media that suffers from the trolls and the noise and the, the inherent bias in trying to attract mass numbers. If you start to do it in a more segmented way, I think the problem is less. Do you foresee a, a world where everything is smaller? I do think we're going to get segmented media. Yeah, definitely. In a sense, we already see this in um, consumer groups. Not in a big way yet. I expected to see more by now. I would have expected Facebook to be niched more than it has been. And we still all use Facebook, even though we complain about it, if nothing else, as a, as a means to review the media that we've signed up for. But yes, I expect more niche media to take over groups from the big mass media. And that doesn't mean they'll die. It just means that we'll have some niche media as well. 
I, for example, uh, one of the first media groups I look at in the morning is CNBC because it's business focused and because the headlines there are more attuned to the investments I've made and other things I want to worry about. And then I go to more general media afterwards. And I have, I have a bunch of things like that. They're even things I paid for. I'm a racing sailor and there's, a, there's not very many sources of racing sailor news available. And so I subscribe and pay for the ones that are of interest to me. I think there'll be more of that. You think there's a future for the local newspaper you're helping? I think there's definitely a future for local news. I think there's a future for niche news. The concept that we used to talk about in the magazine world is addiction. You want to be able to generate addiction on the part of your subscribers because they need to have that issue every month. They need to have that buzz of whatever the subject matter is that you're talking about that they can't get as well from anywhere else. Whether you're able to do that depends on staffing and management and all the other things that go into building and keeping a company around. But I absolutely think there's a market for it. Going back to China, the big news at the moment is Hong Kong, the Hong Kong riots. What's your interpretation of the Hong Kong riots within a Chinese context? Because I suppose the simple read for us is this is the autocracy of China under attack. But I think it's probably much more nuanced, right, if you, if you really understand the region. It's complicated, of course. The 1987 agreement, which turned into the 1997 signature and handover between the British government and the Chinese government created a period of 50 years during which Hong Kong was supposed to have a semblance of independence. But it was always clear from the beginning that as soon as China was in control, that they assumed it was going to be a transition over time, not a 50 years on their own and then click be part of China. The 50 years was hoped to give Hong Kong time whilst China evolved. At the time of the handover, China was much more closed than it is now, post Deng Xiaoping, but it was still much less the China of today, much less developed. And so there was the hope that um, at the time when the Hong Kong became fully a part of China, that the transition would be less painful. Clearly, there are concerns. There have been concerns for some time, but they were elevated by one particular case, the notion that a Chinese citizen could be taken to China, extradited to China for prosecution that worried locals. And it's not an unreasonable concern. And China allows a certain leeway for certain places because they're outside the boundaries. By the same token, they can't be seen, given it's a big country and hard to manage, to accept too much from any one space because they're worried that would spread. And Hong Kong has a special case because of this arrangement, and because it's on a different side of a border, and because uh, Hong Kong's position is, is, is clearly special within China, within Asia. But there's a limit to what they'll accept. And the violence is, it's a risk for Hong Kong. It's a risk for Hong Kong's people in general, because at some point it becomes embarrassing and Chinese government doesn't like embarrassment. So, But I'm, I'm surprised. It looked like they were going to come across the border with tanks a few weeks ago, and it, it didn't happen. So wise voices prevailed and, and it didn't escalate in that way. Um, and they, they're patient, so we'll see what happens. It is something that, it's a, it's a tricky situation. But do you think what's at play is simply democracy in Hong Kong? Or do you think it's also about wealth inequality and other issues that maybe aren't talked about as much? All politics has all those elements mixed in. There are components that are economic-based. I remember writing in my master's thesis about the fear that Hong Kong Chinese had during the handover talks that they weren't going to be able to make their money and get out before the Chinese came in. That sense of the, the big force across the border has always been there in Hong Kong. It's part of what's driven creativity and, and development there. The same is true in Singapore with its neighbors. I think all of these things are built into the, the Hong Kong question. I think it's very hard to separate these things out. But as in anything which starts as one issue, people jump on board. Sometimes it's you know noisy people who, who like breaking down walls. That's not helpful and it's and it's dangerous for Hong Kong. Where do you stand on the question of economic growth in China? It's clearly been an economic miracle, but some people argue that it's a miracle that's been sustained through a lot of cheap government debt over the last few years. Is China due or about to have a slowdown? And is it already having a slowdown that maybe isn't being recorded as such? Certainly the numbers that the government publishes, both on its growth, where we believe they understated it, by the way, even at its peak, 
and at the um, current level where maybe they're overstating it, need to be taken with a pinch of salt in the usual external analysis. And yes, clearly there is a slowdown already taking place. And yes, part of the growth that took place, the development took place, was essentially free money, but not just from the government, it came from overseas, right? There was a huge amount of foreign direct investment, which fueled the growth that took place. But there's also a natural growth. You had a hundreds of millions of people moving from farmland into the cities. You had uh, the most Darwinian business environment you could imagine, where people who had n not had the freedom to build economic models in their countries suddenly could. And there was this fierce, 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 and constantly fierce battle. Foreign businessmen, friends of mine, talked about in the 90s and later, and even today, about how fierce the competition is there. They were talking about how the Chinese companies treated them, but actually it's how the Chinese companies treat each other. So it is a really quite Darwinian um, uh, business environment. And I think that remains even with the slowdown. Now, a number of people have for some time been predicting a crash. And I, I for one, am, am surprised that we haven't had a bigger correction um, since then. I'm sometimes surprised and sometimes not. They have very, very good bureaucrats, very, very good technocrats, both trained in China and abroad. And they're very, very good at managing complexity. And so maybe this, there is clearly a larger proportion of non-performing loans within the local banks than is being declared. And the assumption has always been that the growth would eventually build within those areas to the point where the empty buildings would get filled and the empty highways would get filled. And that, you know, if you were patient enough, the holes would get filled by people moving in and growing and that the economy in general would grow and the developed population would grow and the middle class would grow as it has done dramatically over the last 20 years. So in general, I'm not worried about Chinese growth. Yes, there's probably going to be a correction. Will it be hard or soft? Hard to tell, just super hard to tell. Are you not worried that the trade war with the United States is heaping an extra level of sort of exogenous pressure that will be difficult for these technocrats to, to manage? In a word, no. It's a more nuanced answer than that. First of all, let's say that I think that the complaints that the Americans and others have had about Chinese rules for engagement in China are warranted. IP control, which industries you had to have local partner in and what they were able to do and the imposition of JV rules and so on. All of these things created a bias in favor of both China and Chinese companies. But that's kind of what you'd expect since everybody wanted the market. So I, I'm not sure it's unreasonable that they did this. By the same token, it's not unreasonable that people want to now reset the boundaries. China is no longer a developing country, a lot of things have happened. And so to want to reset the rules, I think, is not unreasonable at all. The manner in which you do it is another question. And there are obviously issues about diplomacy or the lack of it, which might cause some concern. But the timing of it from the American point of view is the right thing. It's, it's only now with China in some sense of where growth is a little bit shaky and, and we are wondering about hard landing, soft landing. The US are taking advantage of that to try and get this change happening. So from the US government point of view, leaving aside the manner in which it's being done, it's not an unreasonable approach and it's not unreasonable timing. From the Chinese side, I think it's problematic only if it spreads to being a global issue. The US is one portion of its exports and exports are only one portion of the GDP of the market. I think if China decided that it didn't care, it could probably play this long game for a long, long time and just refuse to sign anything and they'd be fine. So I don't think at the margin, the American pressure is enough to create a much bigger problem than they already have because the problem they have is significant. There's a second question, which is the issue of the acceptance of the Chinese government amongst the Chinese population. And many people have written about how people are willing to accept a lot of the things the government decides because the country is in a position where everybody can now make money, everybody can do well. There's an opportunity for everybody. Yeah, so tacit agreement. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so as long as opportunities remain, then everybody says, fine, it's just the government is the way they are. If that opportunity decreases, if people feel that they're unhappy with governance and they can't get out of whatever situation they're in, they can't do better and have their children lead a better lives. Everybody in China lives for their children. Well, actually, they're used to. That's changing. I think that might cause issues which are as much political as they are economic. And is that the one thing that would cause China to change direction and change its relationship with the rest of the world? Or do you think it, it might happen now with the existing pressure in the trade war? 
I'm not sure that any of this makes China change. The Communist Party has a, a long history and a clear structure. Chinese governments through history have always had long memories and patience. I don't think external factors are going to make China change. I think if China changes, it'll be internal factors. If the future of the global economy is built on new digital network businesses, and those businesses are coming out of China and the US, and notably not out of Europe, at least for the time being, what is the future of Europe? So it's true, um, there was a chart that went around the internet, had those big red balls on the left-hand side, which represented all the Chinese tech companies, and then the um, medium-sized blue balls on the right-hand side, which represented all the first American second Chinese tech companies, um, so Tencent and all the rest of it. And there was this tiny collection of little yellow balls in the middle, which was European tech companies. And so looking at it that way, it doesn't look great for Europe. But that's innovation, and that's the companies that are driving new models in the world. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on in incumbents. And it's not just development of technology that's important, but how you use it. So since a lot of what I foresee about the application of tech in the future is thinking of it as a utility that permeates different components of your business, I think that the Europe's position isn't necessarily disastrous because it's not developing all the pioneering companies in this space. It will be disastrous if it's not able to adjust its existing businesses. And so I would look closely at management senior management in big incumbent companies to see what digital awareness there is. I do this already when I'm making investment decisions. So public market investment decisions, I review the C-suite in every company that I look at. And I'm trying to find out if there's anybody at that top level of that top layer, so chief executive immediately below, no one below that, who is strongly digital aware for whatever reason. I look at their background, I look at their CVs, I look where they've been, I look where they've studied, trying to assess whether or not I think they have people who can make the decisions necessary when they're made propositions, either by third parties or their own staff. I think that's one critical factor. It's not the only factor, of course, but it's one critical factor for deciding whether I think a company is likely to succeed or not. So it's hard to answer your question. I don't think it's possible to answer your question just on the basis of where the pioneering is being done. There's no question there's more pioneering being done in both China and the US than in Europe. And that's unfortunate, but it's a function of smaller home markets, lots of different languages, our approach to funding, the availability of previous entrepreneurs to feed back into the new entrepreneur community. It's just not, you know, there are lots of reasons why Europe is not leading in the space, but that doesn't mean it can't do well with the technology. It still has a lot of smart graduates, it still has a lot of smart business leaders. If they're able to adjust, if business models are able to adjust, it could do fine. I do think that adjustment's easier in smaller countries than bigger countries, but we'll see. I think we're going to have to get you back for part two, if you would be kind enough to come back, because there's a whole section that we didn't cover off around entrepreneurship in the social sector and all the great work you've done with, amongst others, Wheels Plus Wings. But I'm going to ask you to finish with your assessment of the extent to which the social sector can take advantage of some of these same trends in digitization and so on, and also the extent to which it's realistic to think you can mesh entrepreneurship with the social sector. I've been a great fan of something called the um, Global Social Venture Capital Competition and the implications of the competition for a number of years. I was a judge at London Business School in London. And what it did, what the competition did, I think it's based in the US and, and Wharton and Northwestern and other universities are involved, um, although I, I'm out of touch now, so I don't know where it is at the moment. But it was the notion, it was a competition for business schools particularly to encourage MBA teams to solve social problems with a business model. Uh, I call them non-self-funding charities because the notion of social venture has so many fuzzy definitions, you have to define it every time you use it. So I think of it as self-funding charities, an organization which is totally organized around doing good, not just tangentially, that happens to pay for itself. I think that the guiding parameters of having to make sure that the thing makes money or doesn't lose money and ennobles everybody involved in the process, which is a terribly important part. I'm a big believer in, this, in, in the old notion of 
um, teaching a man to fish rather than giving them a fish because you teach them something which they can use to generate wealth for themselves or at least generate a living for themselves. That's much nobler than having people rely on charity. I'm not a big fan of charity. All the social projects that I've been involved with over the last 15 years have been trying to make them self-funding rather than relying on the founder having to spend all their time with their handout begging for money to give to the right cause. I absolutely see a role. In fact, I think it's the future of do good for people who want to try and change the world coming from entrepreneurship backgrounds who understand how to build organizations from scratch, who understand how to lead people in a direction, who understand how to generate both funding and revenue in a marketplace that solves problems. I think it's just a question of focus. And I think we're at a time when people are more aware. I know I know that the younger generation, Gen Z and, and the millennials are already attuned to that notion, at least a lot of them are. I have two daughters, uh, now 28 and 25. The older one is a, has her own sustainable food venture in London. She's just going through her, um, her A round. The, um, what think, is the company called? We've got to uh, give it a shout out. <laughs> Nibs Etc. Nibs Etc. is what it's called. She takes uh, fruit pulp from high quality fruit producers in, in and around London who would normally throw that away and turns that into really scrumptious uh, snacks and granola and crackers and other things. Um, so it's, it's uh, Great. an a- approach to food waste, but the products themselves are actually yummy. So that's nice. She's, she was always a chef right from a very young age. So she, uh, her, her problem at the moment is an interesting problem. She can sell more than she can produce. Everybody loves the product and the story is, is one that works well and she is a, someone who can sell well. The issue is production. She doesn't have enough hours in the day with the staff she has to produce enough to sell what she can sell. She has orders coming in from companies for distribution within company buildings that she can't fulfill. So she's trying to find a subcontractor at the moment. And of course, the subcontractors, she's too small for them. So she's at that space where she's too big to manage with her own staff. So she's hiring people, but too small for the subcontractors to produce for her. Uh, but you know, it's it's a it's a classic consumer product problem, and it's a good problem she has to face. And yeah, solve. and there's a, a problem that entrepreneurs can solve, right? It's sort of Shopify for the consumer goods sector. Yes, and then the, the issue here is she needs a certain quality. Yeah, exactly. They also have to produce it a certain way. She's very much she's consistent about ethics and values throughout the value chain of her business, which is the approach that I take to to businesses and and. and how I try to corrupt MBA students today is to have them think about all the components of the value chain, not just the end product nor the sourcing of funding. So that's Chloe, and and and, and she's doing amazingly well with this. Um, and the second daughter is a is in private equity, and and so um, and in a space which is a, a worthy space, which I won't go into. But um, so I think the the, the younger generation uh, already understands that you can apply business understanding and, and entrepreneurial methods to solving social problems. And I think that's a big plus for all of us. The issue is the rest of us. So I don't even know where to begin to try to summarize this. So maybe I won't even try to summarize it other than to say, this has been a brilliant, I knew it would be wide ranging. I knew it would be fascinating, but I don't, I didn't realize I was going to be left filling this upbeat about technology, the future of the world and how younger generations are going to save us. So thank you very much, Ian. Thank you very much for your time. And um, hopefully we can have you back on again. My pleasure. Happy to be here. And uh, yes, if, you, if you'd like more, then I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to come back. Thank you very much.